Um, so we're back in the Old Testament there. Uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time introducing this short book. Uh, sufficient to say there are many who seek to argue that it should not be taken as a factual historical account of God's dealing with the city of Nineveh or with Jonah, uh, this man. Um, I find it amazing that for many of them at least, if you sort of peel away all of the layers of verbosity around what they say, that at the core of it, their chief objection is simply the fact that in verse 17 of chapter 1, uh, we read the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights and their argument is simply that since there are no known fish um, that could swallow a man and the man stay alive inside of it for three days underwater the account must be not meant to be taken literally but rather allegorically or as a parable or in some such nature I find that absolutely amazing because the verse very clearly states that there are no fish around to be able to do this or at least that implies that because it says very clearly the Lord provided a great fish the, 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 the verse is very clear that God went out of his way to design a fish specifically to be able to do what fishes generally can't do which is to swallow a man and preserve that man's life there in his belly for three days and three nights. I don't see how you can possibly argue that you believe in a God who can create the world and if you don't then I can't see that you're a Christian. Uh, But argue at the same time that he can create the world but he can't create one unique fish for one special purpose uh, that he has to preserve a man's life. That's just a nonsense, isn't it? So my position is very clear. I believe this is, as it is part of the inerrant word of God, that it is to be taken literally, it is to be taken historically. This is an account of God's dealings with a man and through that man with the city of Nineveh. Now I'll say no more by way of introduction than that this week because we're not even going to talk about Jonah this week. Um, God willing we'll look at Jonah next time. But I'd like to suggest before we go any further that this book is really, as I mentioned this morning, about four sort of messages running uh, in parallel through this book and, and we'll try to see these four messages as we go through the book. Um, not in any particular order of importance but the first message is a message to Israel Uh, Israel were God's people they were God's chosen people God's special people they were unique among all the nations on earth at their time and God's dealings with them were very special as Paul points out they had the prophets they had the temple worship uh, God was with them God gave them the law and so on but For the Israelites, by and large, they did not conceive that God had any good purpose for the rest of the world unless they should become proselytes to the the Judaistic faith. Outside of that, they had no hope. They were the Gentiles. God was not for them. God was against them. God had no heart for them. And this is a message to Israel to say, look, God is a God who has a love for the world. God has a compassion for the world. God is reaching out into the world. Although in the Old Testament it was very focused around Israel. Uh, We have have glimpses of it with Ruth uh, and others outside of Israel who God touches and God saves. But primarily it was within Israel. But Jonah very clearly speaks to the Israelites that this this is not the end of God's purposes. God's purposes are greater than this. And they shouldn't have been surprised when the Messiah came and that gospel went out into the whole world. This is the first theme that runs through. There's a second theme uh, in this uh, book and that comes in sort of two strands. That's to the church. There's first of all the very clear message that we are to take God's message out into the world just as Jonah had to. That we're to go out and we're to preach repentance and faith in Christ. It's not just faith in Christ. Jonah's message is very clearly a call to repentance. A call to throw themselves on the mercy of God for their sin. 
And that's the message that as the church we're to take out there. there those who would argue that it's, it's, it's a parable, they're right in that sense that certainly there is a message for us in it. And it's a picture of what we're to do on a greater scale. And we're not to compromise it like Jonah. And when we preach that message we should look for response to it as happened there in Nineveh. And as that response comes we should rejoice in it and glorify God unlike Jonah who... Uh, sort of wished he was rather dead than God had actually saved his people which is an incredibly sad response there's a personal level to the church as well in it I'd suggest to you in that we look at the way Jonah interacts with God and God called Jonah to do something God calls us as individuals to do different things in our lives how do we respond to that do we respond in such a way that we're under God's blessing and God's approval or do we respond in such a way that we're under God's chastisement and God's judgment do we do it in such a way like Jonah did where the hand of the Lord actually has to come against us to wake us up and to prevent us going further against him there's, there's that message running through it as well then there's the message of Jesus Christ thirdly you remember Jesus in Matthew uh, points back to Jonah and he says even as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights so the son of man will be in the ground and, and goes on to say one greater than Jonah is here so Jesus uses this as a picture of himself and we'll look at that. And fourthly, and that's where we start tonight, it's a book about God. I mean, we never lose sight of that, must we, wherever we go in scripture. It's primarily about God. Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ who is God and God the Father. And, and we have here a wonderful insight into the heart and nature of God. Right back there in the midst, I, I, I mean so many people who say, I don't like the God of the Old Testament, I don't understand what they mean. God hasn't changed, he's the same God, Old and New Testament, yesterday, today and forever. But, but in the Old Testament I guess we see a lot of the justice of God, we see a lot of the judgement of God, we see a lot of God's condemning of sin and evil and God's call to, to be totally separate and stand out from the world. And here in this book we see a wonderful insight into the love and compassion of God, don't we? Even for those who sin and have no love of him. God still has great compassion for them and that comes through so clearly in this book so I hope as we go through it we're going to see these things unfolding but for tonight I want us to start here with God and I want us to start just in the first two verses of chapter 1 um, if you've um, got your uh, Bibles there and, and we're in Jonah which is one of those uh, prophets that aren't always the easiest to find between Obadiah and Micah just there um, in the second half of the Old Testament uh, Jonah chapter 1 the first two verses read like this the word of the Lord came to Jonah son of Amittai go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me the first thing I want us to see is this the God who speaks how much do you value your Bible can I ask you that tonight how much do you value this rhetorical question don't all shout back the answers because we could be here all night but, but how much do you value the fact that you have a Bible in your language that you can read probably all of us more than one um, a couple of us were talking before the service someone was looking for another Bible and I was querying which version it was they were looking for and I mentioned the verse and they said oh I've got loads of those no it's, it was another particular one and we, we've got a, a multiplicity of Bibles haven't we how much do you value it I guess your answer will probably be something like uh, well it's, it's very precious to me you might say it's the most precious thing I've got but can I encourage you to just question your mind whether that's really true 
the Lord's really challenged me personally over this in the last few weeks, I've got to be honest. I, I say it's the most precious thing I have and I believe with all my heart it is. But, but does my response to it live that out? Let, let me just give you a quick quiz uh, by, by way of illustration to that. The first question would be this, how much time do you spend every day reading it? Now, now I guess if you're like me you probably spend about eight hours sleep in bed so that's eight hours gone. You maybe spend an hour over your meals you'd spend perhaps eight hours working so that's uh, 17 hours uh, let's, let's say you have three hours relaxing and so on, that's 20 hours that still leaves you four hours even without actually cutting down on any of those things so how much time do you actually spend reading God's word if you claim it's the most precious thing you have that's question number one here's question number two how much of, you, of it have you learnt how much have you actually memorised now, now I, I, I'm, you know, I've got a bad memory. It's getting worse every year, um, and, and that's a convenient excuse, isn't it? We say, well, my memory's not very good, and, you know, come on, that, that, that is an excuse, isn't it, really? We, we learn so many things, don't we, in life? We learn stupid pop songs that have got no value at all. We learn adverts off of television. We say, oh, have you seen that one? And you start quoting what it is. We can quote so much. How much of God's Word have you memorised? You know, I, re- I really encourage those of you, and I know there are some, who are really making it a goal to memorise passages of Scripture. It, it's, it's a wonderful thing to do. Uh, you know, so, some of the great Christians down through the centuries have memorised incredible amounts of Scripture. I, I mean, if, if you were a, a good Muslim, you would memorise the Quran. You would learn it. And that's something I was about two-thirds of the thickness of the New Testament, something like that. And, and, and okay, there's a metre to it and that which helps, but but, but you would learn it. And, and that their, their motive's wrong and all the rest of it, I know. But my point is this. If you want to do it, you can do it. I, I remember a guy coming to preach in our church where I was growing up and he came representing one of the missions that work amongst persecuted Christians and he said, my reading is from wherever it was and then he just quoted it. And he said, please understand, I don't do that in any sense to try and show off, but he said, we try to make it a habit to do that because he said many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in persecuted lands have had their Bibles taken from them or they haven't got Bibles and they're totally reliant on what they've memorised of God's word so he said we make it a discipline to try and memorise all the scripture that we want to use so it's there inside of us no one can take that away from you they can take this away so this question number two if this is really that precious to you how much have you learnt of it? And the third question would be this, how much do you speak to others about what's in it? You know, if something's precious to you, you share it, don't you? Unless you're a selfish person, you want to share it with others. So, so how much do you share God's word? And, and I don't just mean talking about Christ, but I mean actually opening up the scriptures with people and showing them, look, this is what the Bible actually says. You know, I, I know they might not believe the Bible, I might, they might say, well, let's just... You know, a man may put whatever they might say, but that's not the point, is it? You know what it is. It's the Word of God. And if it's precious to you, why aren't you showing it to them and saying, look, do you see what, what God says in his Word? I wonder how well you did on that quiz. I know for myself I could have done an awful lot better. How precious is God's Word? My point is this. If God hadn't spoken, where would you be today? you would be without Christ and without hope in this world, wouldn't you? I mean, God has spoken, first of all, through creation. 
if, if God hadn't spoken through creation or if you were not able to see that, if you were blind and deaf and you could not discern anything of God through creation and, and you didn't have a conscience that worked because God speaks to you through your conscience, that's something he's built inside every human being to, to make them aware of himself and his, his, his laws and, and his will. I, I mean, if you don't listen to that and you don't look at creation and you didn't have a Bible, you would know nothing about God. You could then excuse Richard Dawkins and company for the things that they say because, you know, you'd have some excuse for saying, I don't know anything about God because God hasn't spoken. Imagine what that would be like. A God who is exactly as he is, a God who will not tolerate sin, a God who is holy, a God who his holy nature requires that he sends all sin to hell and all sinners who are not saved to hell. A God like that who's never spoken so you don't know anything about that. Wouldn't that be horrific? But he has spoken. He's spoken through creation, praise the Lord. The heavens declare the glory of God. By just looking at what he's made, we know there is a God. We know that he is an all-powerful God. We know he's a creative God. We know he's a, a wonderful designer. We know he's a provider for his creation. We, we, we know that he's a, a wonderful engineer and, and a wonderful uh, scientist. We know all of those things about him just through what he's made. We know through our conscience something of what he requires of us. But through his word... That's how he speaks to us primarily, isn't it? That's how he speaks to us with special revelation of our need of a saviour, of our destination without Christ, of what the Lord Jesus Christ has come into this world to do. Without scripture, we know nothing of that. Oh, a few historical notes on Jesus, some non-canonical, uninspired writings about Jesus, but we wouldn't have God's word to us. But God has spoken. Now when I say that, I don't, please don't think I mean that we're going to go out and expect God to speak to us like he did to Jonah with a loud voice from heaven saying, go to Nineveh and do that. I don't mean that. What does Hebrews 1, 1 to 2 tell us? In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. God's revelation to us climaxes in Jesus Christ. That, that is the pinnacle of his revelation. And God has given us his word in order that we can read it, in order that we can hear him speak to us. We're warned against adding to God's word. Paul puts it like this in writing to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's God's word. And God speaks to us through it today. Do you listen to God? Do you delight to listen to God? Do you make that your highest priority every day to speak to him and to listen to him speaking to you in order that you can know what he wants of you, in order that you can learn more about him, in order that you can grow in Christ? And as your renewed mind dwells on that word and as your conscience is quickened by that word, so God speaks into us at a personal level and challenges us and and shapes our thinking and shapes our lives in accordance with his word. Are you listening to God? Are you glad that God speaks? Second thing I want you to see here is that God sees. Verse 2. Go to that great city in Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. 
God sees all things. Terrible indictment on that city, wasn't it? God hasn't got a good thing to say about it. He looks at that city and he looks at the lives and he looks at the hearts and he looks at the thoughts of all the men and women and children in that city and the sum totality of all that he sees amounts to this. It is wicked. And so he sends Jonah there. God sees all things. Can I suggest to you that that is at one and the same time the most terrifying thought and the most comforting thought that God sees everything? For the non-Christian, or for the Christian who's in rebellion against God, the Christian who's harbouring sin in his heart, that's a terrifying thought, isn't it? That God sees everything. The psalmist puts it like this, David, he writes in Psalm 139, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Isn't that a terrifying thought if you're outside of Christ? Isn't that a terrifying thought if you're a Christian you're trying to run away from God and disobey Him? You cannot go where God will not see you. You can't hide in the darkness. You can't go to a distant place. You can't go to another planet. You, you can't even have a thought there in your mind for a moment that God doesn't see completely. Because such is God's seeing. And David who wrote that knew that. Do you remember? There's David. He's there in his palace. And it's springtime when kings are supposed to take their armies out to war and David sends his army out without him because he's got better things to do. He'll stay in his palace. And there where he's not supposed to be, he goes up onto the roof and what does he do? He looks out and sees a woman naked. And God sees that he's where he shouldn't be and God sees what David sees. And David, instead of turning away from that woman, looks at that woman and he lusts after her and God sees the response in his heart to that woman. And David then sends to find out about the woman and God sees that. And David then arranges for her to come and sleep with him and God sees that. And she becomes pregnant and David calls for Joab and gets Joab to send Uriah out to the front line so that he'll be murdered in a, in a suicidal mission along with men with him and God sees that and God sends Nathan to David and Nathan says to David David you're that man and David suddenly realised God's seen it all every thought he's had every action he's done God has seen every bit of him and David is brought to the lowest point of his life and through that into the greatest relationship with God that any man has had. A man after my own heart, says God. Oh, my friend, you can't run from God. Can I ask you, is it possible that you're here tonight and you don't know the forgiveness of Christ? That somehow you're trying to live your life without reference to God, with the idea somehow that God doesn't see and God doesn't know. And you can put on a face and an appearance that's acceptable and morally okay and everyone will look around and say you're a good enough person and you'll convince yourself of that my friend God knows 
He knows what you're thinking at this moment. He knows what you're going to do tomorrow even before you've done it. He knows everything. You can't hide from him. He sees it all. Is it possible you're here tonight and you're a Christian and you're harbouring sin in your heart? Or you're running from something that God's called you to do? God sees it. God sees it completely. It's like the night becomes, what does it say? The night will shine like day for darkness is as light to you. Oh my friend, don't, don't think God doesn't see But if you're a Christian and you've let God deal with your sin, there is no more wonderful truth than this. God sees everything. Of all the people in this world that you feel you've got to put on an appearance before and a face before, God knows you and he's forgiven you as you stand and he loves you as you are. There's nothing to pretend about with God. There's there's no point in, in, in making out you're anything other than what you are. When you come to him in prayer, you can tell him exactly as it is. You can just lay your heart open to him because he's seen it all anyway. And he's for you anyway if you're a Christian. Whatever you're going through, what are you worrying about tomorrow? If you're a Christian here tonight, God's seen it. He's seen it. He's seen how you're going to go through it. He's seen what he's going to do to you through it. He's seen when it's going to end for you and he's seen the end result that's going to glorify him through it. He knows it. Jesus puts it like this in Matthew ten twenty nine to 31 Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Isn't that wonderful? What are you worrying about this morning if you're a Christian? A sparrow falls to the ground and God says, I saw that. We were talking, we had to kill a pigeon before the service started this morning. Um, it was on the point of dying, or it may have even been dead by the time we did it, but it was obviously suffering and we just, we just had to kill it. And we said, and God saw the passing of that pigeon. God sees it all. He says, I know how many hairs you've got on your head. I, I can tell you at this instant, there are 98,900, whatever many it is, he hasn't got to count them. He knows it. He sees all things perfectly. And he says, do you think I don't value you more than many sparrows if you're my child? I'll rejoice in the fact that God sees and sees it all. God's provision for you is based on his knowledge of you. And his knowledge of you is perfect. And in this world with all its confusion and complexity, with all its uncertainties, at least to us, and all its contradictions, God sees it all. Do you get worried about what you see on the news? Do you get worried about what that's going to mean for your children and your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren? When you look at what's happening in Pakistan and China and different countries on this planet at the moment, our God sees it. God understands it, he knows it, he's got a heart for it and he's working in it. And a day is coming when all of this will be over and he will recreate it perfectly. And never again will anyone suffer with sunburn or flooding or lack of food or anything else. But only righteousness will dwell there 
the God who see, speaks, the God who sees and finally the God who sends verse 2 go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it I think one of the things that most amazes me in the whole of scripture is that God chooses to use men and women for his work it never ceases to amaze me I, I don't know about you I, I'm sure to many of you this is just totally idle speculation and a waste of my time but I have to confess to you that I spend a lot of time just thinking about this and, and it does my heart good because it, it results in me worshipping God and that's how it must have been when God unfolded his plan of how he was going to have the gospel spread around this world you know I can just imagine there in the glories God saying to the angels when Jesus has died and been crucified and risen again and ascended to heaven now the news of this is going to be preached to every creature under heaven and I can just imagine the angels saying right boss when do we go you know, let's go tonight we're going to do it tonight we, we'll, we'll tell everyone in one night no problem and I can imagine God turning to them and saying no I'll tell you what my plan is I'm going to use human beings to do it I'm going to tell them that I want them to go into all the nations and preach the gospel and I can just sort of imagine the angel's response but, but God, they'll get it wrong they'll muck it up they'll take forever doing it it will take them weeks you know, I, I, I guarantee you God it will be months before they told everyone we, we could do it in one day I can imagine my Lord turning around to them saying you don't begin to know 2,000 years on they still won't have completed it but that's the way I want to do it for my glory's sake that's the way I want to do it and I can just imagine all the angels struck dumb at the amazing plan of God that he wants to send us out there in all our frailty and all our weakness to tell other people about the God of heaven and they need to repent and they need to call on his name and be saved and what amazes me so much is he knows our weaknesses I mean look at we're not going on to it tonight but just look into verse 3 and it becomes so apparent Jonah's weakness doesn't it what does it say there Jonah ran away from the Lord the very next verse God says go to Nineveh and what does Jonah do he goes over there as far away as he can get from where God's calling him to go and the amazing thing is God knew he was going to do that before he called him before God calls him to go to Nineveh and preach against it, he knows Jonah's going to go down to Tarshish, get on a ship, head away as far as he can, that God's then going to have to cause a storm to come up, and then he's going to have to create a specially designed fish to swallow Jonah and preserve him for three days, all in order to bring him back to chapter 3, verse 1, where he gives him the same command again to go to Nineveh. And God still chooses to use Jonah. It's amazing, isn't it? God knows our weaknesses. And God's an accommodating God who will accommodate those weaknesses. But he doesn't want us to rebel against him and run away. He wants to use us with our weaknesses. Moses gave every objection under the sun, didn't he? Until the Lord's anger burned against him and God said, let go, I will send Aaron to speak for you. How do we respond when God speaks to us? How do we respond? I don't know what God's speaking to you tonight and saying to you, but I believe God's speaking. I know God speaks. And I know God calls. And I know God sends. And my friend, if you're a Christian, you can't escape that. 
And maybe for someone he's calling you to go and serve him overseas. Maybe he's calling you to go into some channel of Christian ministry. Maybe he's calling you to speak to some people that you haven't had the guts to speak to up until now, whatever it might be. But God's calling you to do it and he's sending you to do it. How do you respond to that? Do you do like Jonah and immediately pack your bags and head the opposite direction? Or do you turn around to this God who sees all and say, God, you know my heart, you see my weakness, you see my hesitation, you see my frailty, you see my fears. Father, will you empower me? Will you strengthen me? Will you help me? I can't do this on my own, but in dependence on you, I will seek to go where you send me. My friend, will you go? This book of Jonah could have been such a short book, couldn't it? If in verse 3, instead of reading that Jonah ran away, we simply read that Jonah went and did what God had commanded him to do. He still had to do it in the end. God doesn't say, okay, if you don't like that plan, I'll give you a different one. But how much better if he got it right the first time. Praise God he got it right the second time. May we learn from Jonah.